Hey, uh, before we jump into week two of our series, uh, I just want to take a moment to remind everybody here in London, everybody there in Somerset, and people watching wherever you're watching from, uh, we're two weeks away from Easter here at the Creek, and uh, one of our values as a church is that everyone can reach someone, and what that means practically for Easter weekend is that we believe everyone uh, can bring someone. So be thinking about who the person is that you need to bring as your guest Easter weekend. If you don't have any friends uh, that are not connected to faith and that don't attend church and you need to make some new friends and, and you need to do it quick because Easter's coming and, and it's a great weekend to bring them, tell them they don't have to dress up. They can if they want to, but most of us will be casual. I can remember being a kid in church and everybody dressed up in a way they never dressed up throughout the rest of the year and it was the worst service of the year. And, and I think it was the worst service of the year because everybody was so uncomfortable because they had so many clothes on. And uh, so make sure you're here and make sure you bring somebody uh, on Easter weekend. You're going to get an invite card as you leave here. Take one, take a few, put them in the hands of people and make sure uh, you get them to be with you on Easter weekend, two weeks from today. If you agree to that, say, I do. Okay, some of you haven't made up your mind, but that's okay. Hey, uh, if you weren't here last week or your guests of ours today, we kicked off this series with an unsettling, uncomfortable truth. And here's the truth. Uh, when the circumstances are right, right? You know, whenever the circumstances are just exactly the way they need to be, when the circumstances are right, we are capable of committing any wrong and that we is you and that we is me. So when the circumstances are right, you and me are capable of committing any wrong. We don't like that, but that is true. And we know that that's true because it has been true of us. And unfortunately, we suspect that it will be true for all of us at some point in the future. And because we share this in common, because all of us are capable of doing things that we think we're not capable of doing, because we are capable of anything wrong when the circumstances are right. It also allows us to share something else unfortunate in common. And the thing that we share in common because of this is regret. Because you and I have the capacity to do wrong when the circumstances are right, we all share regret. You have regret, I have regret. The fact of the matter is we all make mistakes, you make mistakes, I make mistakes. And most of the time, most of the time we ignore our mistakes, don't we? Most of the time we don't even log our mistakes. Most of the time we don't even catch our mistakes. But occasionally, every once in a while, we do something, we say something, we take some form of action, we make some decision that we can't ignore. Matter of fact, it wounds us. We pause and we think about it because there's something different about this as compared to some of the other things that we've done. There's certain mistakes that cause us just to pause and take notice. They wound us in time, they scar us, and ultimately for the rest of our lives in some way or the other, they mark us. And you have regret and I have regret because we all have the inability, now listen to this, this is encouraging, we all have the inability to get it right all the time. And because none of us have the capacity to get it right all the time, we have this inevitable regret creep that ends up in our life. Regret creeps into our lives. And most of the time, as we go through life, regret is never far from us. Regret's always back there over our shoulder. Regret's there whispering in our ear. And it never allows us to forget the things that we got wrong. And so they lurk in the shadows. And they end up influencing all the most important areas of our life, our career, our family, our relationships, and ultimately our faith. And because, you know, regret can affect our, you know, faith, it robs us of the life that we all kind of want for ourselves, this quality of life, and even this abundant life that Jesus said that he came into the world to offer all people. So all of us 
have got regret. You've got regret. I've got regret. Some of them are big. Some of them are small. So what do we do with it? What do we do with our regret? And is there hope in this life for this life beyond regret? That's what we're going to talk about. Now, when Jesus showed up on the pages of history, he was baptized by John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. And that marked the beginning of his public ministry. And when Jesus began his public ministry, one of the first things that he did was he recruited a group of guys to be his followers. The original disciples of Jesus, we call them the 12. In time, they will be regarded as the apostles. And so Jesus, once he went public with his ministry, he began to recruit 12 men to be his followers. And if you know anything about these guys, they were the unconventional choice, were they not? They were unconventional in the sense that if you were gonna choose a group of guys to start a worldwide, world-changing movement, these were not the guys that you would choose to follow you. And that's exactly what Jesus did though. He asked a group of guys who were fishermen, tax collectors, political protesters, essentially a bunch of nobodies from nowhere to be the original followers. And these guys, when you read through the pages of you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the thing that you're gonna be struck by is the fact that they're a lot like you. And they're a lot like me because they were ordinary. And because they were ordinary, because they were human, they were impulsive. And at times they were temperamental and at times they were easily offended and at times they were petulant. At times they took on the prejudices of their environment and their culture in the first century. And a lot of the times they were just slow to learn. Jesus would say things over and over again, but it was like they didn't get it. They didn't understand what Jesus was trying to say. And these were the guys that Jesus chose to follow him and not only follow him, but ultimately to succeed him. And each of the 12 would go on to affect history in their own way. Each of them would affect history in their own way. 11 of them, right? 11 of them would become famous, but one of them would become infamous. Infamous because he was a pretender, he was a manipulator, and ultimately because he proved to be a traitor. This one disciple, the infamous one, this one disciple is regarded as perhaps the greatest colossal failure in all of human history who committed the most heinous act in all of human history because of his betrayal of Jesus that ultimately led to the death of Jesus. And of course, you already know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Judas Iscariot. Now, let me tell you something about Judas. We don't name our sons Judas anymore, do we? Right? And the reason that we don't name our children Judas is because of Judas. The name is but all but disappearing. Now, it'd be my luck, you're here today and your name is Judas. <laughs> so thank you for being here. Second of all, your parents have guts. I mean, so kudos to your parents. And third, maybe we have a Rahab or Bathsheba around here that you could hook up with. You could have kids, name them Absalom and Delilah, I don't know. But Judas is just not a name that we use anymore because of Judas. Now. Whenever we think of Judas, we think of the same storyline. Greedy, betrayer. Greedy, betrayer. The one who betrayed Jesus, right? We, we've got it down, we know that. And so we don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about Judas, do we? But we need to spend some time thinking about Judas because we may be shocked. We might even be offended at how much we share in common with the infamous one, the pretender, the manipulator, the traitor the one who betrayed Jesus. 
So we should think about him. And we should think about the fact that he was ordinary. Right? We make him into this villain. But he was human. We like to make him into a devil. But he was human. He was ordinary. He was as ordinary as the other 11. And Jesus had personally recruited Judas to follow him. There was a time and place where Jesus walked up to Judas, just like he did Matthew, just like he did Andrew and Peter and James and John and Nathaniel and Bartholomew and Thomas and the rest. There was a time when Jesus walked up to Judas Iscariot and said, Judas, follow me. Jesus personally recruited Judas because he was ordinary. He was unconventional. He was unpredictable, just like the other 11. So much so that Judas and the other 11, they had a what's in it for them type of faith. That's the kind of faith they had when they first started following Jesus. What's in it for me type of faith. They saw Jesus, Judas and the 11, they saw Jesus as a means to an end. Judas saw Jesus as a means to his end. Because as we discover more about Judas, as long as Jesus fit into Judas's agenda, Judas was in. The moment that Jesus did not fit into Judas's agenda, Judas was out. Now, before we put him on a poster and throw darts at him, and before we beat him down the way that we've beat him down for 2,000 years and talked about Judas and, and made him into the villain that we just can't understand how anybody could do such a thing, you need to know that all 12 disciples betrayed Jesus. All 12 in the end betrayed Jesus. All 12 at the end of Jesus' life walked away faithless. At the end, all 12 of them walked away. But the difference between the 11 and Judas, there was one that didn't come back. And that was Judas. And perhaps the reason that Judas did what he did was he had misguided expectations and assumptions about Jesus to begin with. In the first century, a lot of people thought that when the Messiah showed up, the Messiah was going to be a military leader. He was going to drive out the Romans, and then he was going to set up his throne in Jerusalem, and he's going to rule and reign. And Judas and the other disciples, they really thought that they were on the front end of a military revolution. They really thought they were on the front end of Jesus going into Jerusalem and saying, hey, I am the son of David. I am the Messiah. I am here to restore the kingdom of David. Drive out the Romans. Then he's going to sit on his throne and Jesus is going to have the biggest throne. But Judas and the other 11 thought, well, Jesus has a big throne. Maybe we'll get smaller thrones. And they thought that they were on the front end of something big. They thought they were on the front end of the kingdom of David being restored that Israel was going to be restored to the days and to the glory of Solomon's kingdom. And they thought that they were on the front side of something they were going to benefit from personally. It was going to be financial benefit. There was going to be social benefit. And they thought they were on the front end of a kingdom that Jesus was going to claim in Jerusalem when he would drive out the Romans. That's the reason the disciples would argue about, hey, who's going to sit on his right side and left side? when we get to the kingdom, because they thought the kingdom wasn't a long time away. They thought the kingdom was about to happen. They thought that Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem and say, bam, here I am. And they were going to be like, yeah, we're with him. That's what they were expecting. That's why they were arguing about this. They didn't understand the nature of the kingdom that Jesus came to begin. They didn't understand that his kingdom was not of this world. 
Now, a lot of scholars who, who write a lot about Judas and, and study a lot about Judas, they take his last name, you know, this surname, Iscariot, and they think that it points to the fact that Judas was part of a group called the Sicarii. And being part of this group, it was an ultra-zealot Jewish group. Now, this is really interesting, and this is really important for us to understand perhaps why Judas thought what he thought and behaved the way he behaved. This Sicarii group was made up of assassins and political protesters. This particular group, they would carry around swords all the time, waiting for the Messiah to show up and say, it's time to raise our swords against the oppressors. And that's how they lived in the first century. They carried their swords. They waited for the Messiah. They waited for Messiah, you know, in the heavens. And they were ready to raise their swords, drive out the Romans, and establish the kingdom of David. That's, that's who they were. And perhaps that's what Judas thought about Jesus. Perhaps that was his expectations. And so he was expecting a military leader. He was expecting a king who would sit on the throne in Jerusalem. And he was going to get to be there and be a part of it and enjoy the benefits of it. So when he would listen to Jesus preach about love your enemies, it caused tension. It, it was causing friction in Judas's heart and mind because the enemy was Rome. We're not supposed to love Rome. We're supposed to drive them out. And then Jesus would say, you should pray for your enemies. And he's like, no, I'm not praying for the Romans. We are here, you are here to drive them out. It is time to take the kingdom back, Jesus. You are the son of David, you're the Messiah. This is why I'm with you. Quit talking about going the second mile for our enemy. I am not going the second mile for a Roman soldier. I am here to help you drive that soldier out of town because Judas wanted a holy war. And when he realized that Jesus didn't come to start a holy war, he realized that he and Jesus were on two separate pages, heading in two different directions. And it forces us to deal with the question. And here's the question. What will you do when Jesus disappoints you? What will you do when you were planning on going here and you thought that Jesus was gonna take you there, but ultimately Jesus, you found out, was going there? And that wasn't necessarily where you wanted to go. What are you gonna do when Jesus disappoints you? What will you do when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations? You expected it was gonna be this way. You thought all the pieces of the puzzle was gonna to fit together, but then it didn't. What are you gonna do when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations? You signed up, you became a follower. You said, yes, I do. You signed the paper, you got baptized, you took communion, but then it was not what you expected. What are you gonna do? And that's where Judas was. That's what he was wrestling with. That's what he was trying to make sense of. And this internal bitterness simmered until it boiled over because of one particular tipping point event. An act of generosity is what sent Judas over the edge. And coincidentally, that came on the heels of the miracle that sent the religious establishment over the edge. Last week, we talked about the raising of Lazarus. That miracle sent Caiaphas and the religious establishment plotting to take Jesus's life. So while Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin are in Jerusalem planning to take Jesus's life, Jesus and his 12 disciples are a mile and a half outside of Jerusalem in a little town called Bethany. And while they're plotting his death in Jerusalem, Jesus is at a dinner party in Bethany. And this is what Matthew says. He says, while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, and, and perhaps, you know, Simon was someone who used to be a leper. That's what most believe that he used to be a leper, but he had met Jesus. And so his life had been changed. 
It's a couple of days after Lazarus had been raised from the dead, right? You know, Jesus broke up a funeral. Lazarus, you know, was raised from the dead. Everybody had to stop mourning and start celebrating. And most of the time, we're not good with a change of plan. So, you know, they had to kind of do a redo. And they were like, hey, we're going to get together. We're going to celebrate the fact that Lazarus is back with us. And so Simon, he throws a party in his house and he invites Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus. Lazarus is there. Mary's there. Martha's there. Jesus is there. The 12 are there. And as they're sitting there reclining, Mary's there sitting at the feet of Jesus. Martha's in the kitchen working. Lazarus is there at the table. And all of a sudden, I always picture it this way, that Mary, she's just looking around and she sees Simon, her good friend, her neighbor. He used to be a leper, but he's not anymore because of Jesus. And she's just thinking, wow, that's so awesome. She looks around and she knows Martha's in there. She can hear the pots, you know, clanging around in the kitchen. And she's like, Martha, 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 Lord Jesus, Martha. And she's like, you know, but she loves Jesus. And she's in there and that's how she shows her love for Jesus because she's been so affected by Jesus. Then she looks across the table and she sees her brother Lazarus, who was dead just a couple of days ago. And she's so overwhelmed with gratitude, the only way that she knows how to express it is through generosity. Because the greatest expression of our gratitude is generosity. And when we have a problem with generosity, most of the time we can trace it back, we have a problem with being grateful. So she goes to her house she goes and gets a really expensive jar of perfume, an expensive jar of perfume that's so expensive, it was worth a single year's salary. So just think whatever you make in a year, whatever you make household income in a year, that's how much that cost. And she broke the neck of that bottle and she fully committed it to Jesus. She poured it on his head and she anointed him. And when Judas and the other 11 disciples saw that, they were angered by it. Matter of fact, Judas was the one who was most angry by it. And he instigated the other disciples to be angry about it as well. And so they protested. And they said, you should have done that, Mary. You should have given that to the poor. You should have sold it and given the proceeds to the poor. You should have sold that and given the proceeds to us. And we would have done something better with it. And so, you know, it sounded all spiritual because it was greed veiled behind feigned compassion. And we know it was feigned compassion because of what John says about the matter. He says, Judas only said this because he cared about the poor. Not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Right? I mean, that's the storyline. He was a thief. He was greedy. He didn't say it because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money back, he used to help himself. Because at the center of Judas's world was Judas. It was all about him. What is in this for me? Jesus is a means to an end. He is a means to my end. But here's what's so striking about this. And this is, this is why we need to see Judas from a point of view that he was human, just like me and just like you. He was the treasurer. Who do you typically let take care of your money? The people you trust the most. There was nothing about Judas that led anybody to suspect that he couldn't be trusted. Matter of fact, he may have seemed to be the most trustworthy of the 12. And so they made him treasurer because no one worried that he would help himself. No one would ever think that his greed would allow him to embezzle or to take funds out of the treasury. Nobody suspected that. Nobody would ever anticipate that. It's because he was just like the others. He carried himself just like the others. He was ordinary, just like the others. And for whatever reason, he seemed like the greatest choice to be treasurer. 
Nobody had a suspicious thought about Judas at this particular time. John's writing about this after the fact. And Judas, he makes what seems like on the surface a spiritual point. You know, what about, what about the poor? What about the poor? But it wasn't that, John said. It was the fact that he was stealing. Nobody knew it at this point except Jesus. That's why Matthew said, aware of this, aware of why Judas is saying what he's saying and protesting, aware of this, Jesus said to them, to all the disciples, because they've all chimed in, right? They heard Judas speak up and they're like, yeah, what he said. Yeah, yeah. Why, why wouldn't this, why would you do that, Mary? And Jesus, he speaks to all of them and says, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. And this is, this is, this is big. What the closest people to Jesus, what the people that have been with him for three years, heard him teach, watched his miracles, knew his heart. The people closest to Jesus saw what Mary had done. And they said, this is wasteful. Jesus looked at the very same thing and said, no. It is beautiful. Their perspective was so different than Jesus's. They saw generosity towards Jesus as a waste. And if you see generosity in the direction of Jesus as a waste, you may be more like Judas than you really want to be. Because Jesus saw it as beautiful. And Jesus goes on and he says, the poor, the poor you will always have with you, right? We've heard that before. But this part we cannot miss, and most of the time we do. But you will not always have me. And Judas and the other 11, they're listening to Jesus, and all of a sudden, it's like Judas says to him, says, what do you mean we won't always have you? Where are you going? You're Jesus. You're king. You're Messiah. You're going to Jerusalem. You're going to start a kingdom. What do you mean we're not always going to have you? Of course we are. You are the eternal king. You are forever Messiah. When you kick off your kingdom, we are there with you. But they had heard Jesus talk about the cross. They'd heard Jesus talk about suffering at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes, but, but they were so hard-headed and they just didn't get it because it didn't fit their expectations. It didn't fit how they thought things were gonna turn out. And Jesus goes on with this and he says, listen, you're not always gonna have me. When she, Mary, has poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare for my burial. And again, Judas and the 11, they're, burial? What are you talking burial? You're the son of God, sons of gods don't die. Messiahs don't die. The son of David doesn't die. You set up an eternal kingdom. You are the eternal king. What you, stop talking about dying. And Jesus is over there thinking, we gotta, we gotta get him to stop this. Nobody's gonna wanna follow a guy who's talking about death into battle. We want a general who's taken us to victory, not one who's taken us to death. Stop talking about death. This wasn't part of their faith. This wasn't part of their plan. This wasn't part of their expectations. And it certainly wasn't part of Judas's. Then Jesus speaks up and says one last thing, which is so profound. He makes a prophecy. He makes a prediction. You know, we love to hear about prophecies and predictions. We think about these prophecies. Well, this, this, this may be the coolest one of all. Because right now, the prophecy, the prediction of Jesus is being fulfilled right now in real time. It's happening right now because this is what Jesus said. He said, truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done, what Mary has done will also be told in memory of her. A mile and a half outside of Jerusalem in a little town of Bethany, he looks at everybody in the dinner parties attendance that night and says, hey, one day they're going to tell my story all around the world. 
And when they tell my story all around the world, they're going to tell the story of what Mary did on this night. And you know what we're doing 2,000 years later? We are talking about the story of Jesus and we're talking about this woman from a little bitty town outside of Jerusalem in Bethany who broke open a bottle of perfume and poured it on Jesus. In other words, what Jesus is saying, guys, don't get hung up on the burial part. Don't get hung up on I'm not gonna be with you always. The movement's gonna continue. The movement's going global. But this episode with Mary and the perfume, it sent Judas over the edge and he, he reached out in a moment of just being bitter and angry and disappointed and disillusioned. He spiraled out of, the, out of control to the point that he did something completely desperate. And I think the reason that he's about to do what he's about to do is because he's wondering in this moment, have I wasted the time that I've given to Jesus? Have I wasted these three years? There's gonna, if he dies, there's gonna be nothing to show for it. And if he dies, who do you think the next possible people to get killed will be? It will be those closest to him. This is not the way I thought it was going to be. I think I've wasted my time with Jesus. So Judas gets some time away, he walks away. Maybe he told them he had to go somewhere, meet somebody, but he walks away. And Matthew says immediately on the hills of all that happened, then right after this, this act of generosity, then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest, Jesus's most fierce opponents, went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give? And everybody talk to me, what's that word? Because at the center of Judas's world was only one person, Judas. Jesus was an end to a means, his end. He was a means to an end and it was Judas's end that mattered most. What are you gonna give me? What's in it for me? And when it appeared as though there was nothing in it for Judas, he needed to sure up his bets. And he says, what will you give me, guys, to get Jesus into your hands? And so they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. They reached into their treasury And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. And in that moment, 30 pieces of silver was more valuable to Judas than Jesus. 30 pieces of silver, about a month's worth of wages. Mary had poured perfume that was worth a year's wages. Judas betrayed Jesus for something far less, 30 pieces of silver. And this was worth more to Judas in this moment than Jesus was worth to Judas. He's hedging his bets. He's making sure that in the end there is something for him. He's trying to get what he thinks he deserves and he has no idea but in this moment he is trading the ultimate for the immediate the long term 
for something short term. And he has no idea in this transaction what hangs in the balance. He has no idea what's about to happen. Has no idea about what's to happen to Jesus, what's about to happen to him. He has no idea. And you know what? In the moments when we are in this place, when we're deciding how much is Jesus worth to me, is this choice, is this option, is this path, is this person, is this relationship, is this habit, is this thing more important to Jesus than it is to me? Is this thing more important to me than Jesus is to me? In those moments, we never know what's hanging in the balance. We never know what we're giving up. We don't, and neither did Judas. And it says, from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over because of 30 pieces of silver. A few days later, Jesus will tell his disciples to go into Jerusalem and when they go to Jerusalem, he tells them to look for a man who's carrying a water pot. Follow that man to a place and ask him where the teacher and his disciples can celebrate Passover together. The disciples did as Jesus told him, Joel told them. They found the man, followed him to a building, and in a place called the upper room, they found a place prepared for Jesus and his disciples to celebrate Passover. It's gonna be up there in the upper room around the Passover table that Jesus is gonna give some of his most known remarks. Some of his greatest statements are gonna happen in that room when he looks at his followers and says, guys. And for the record, he's talking to all 12 of them. All 12 of them are celebrating Passover with Jesus. He says, I want you to love one another as I've loved you. A new commandment, guys, I give to you that you love one another as I've loved you. Guys, greater love has no man than this, than a man who will lay down his life for his friends. And I have called every single one of you, all 12 of you, friends. And then in a single moment, Jesus turns upside down the social order of the world in a world where it was all about getting to the top, climbing to the top, Jesus, the guest of honor, the Messiah, the King, disrobes, girds himself with a towel, and he washes the feet of all 12 of his disciples. He washed the feet of Peter, who would betray him with three public denials. He washed the feet of Thomas, who became the doubter. He washed the feet of Judas, who he knew was the betrayer. Later on, Jesus that night declares, one of you will betray me tonight. And all the disciples were like, is it me, is it me, is it me? And Judas knew that Jesus was talking about him, though no one else did. And Jesus looked at Judas and said, Judas, what you have to do, go do it quickly. 
And Judas left and no one knew where Judas had gone. They thought that Jesus had sent Judas on an errand. Later that night, they leave the upper room. Jesus takes his disciples to the garden of Gethsemane. And there he'll pray, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And if it's possible, let this cup pass from me because he knew that he was in the shadows of what came next. And what came next was the cross. And while he was praying, as torches lit up the outer parts of the garden, as soldiers with torches, swords, and spears came marching towards Jesus, Jesus walked towards those who were there to arrest him. And with those carrying the torches that night was one of the 12, Judas. And it says, going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. And even when Jesus knew what he had done, And even when Jesus knew why he was there, he called him friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus and arrested him. They take Jesus to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. They beat him. They spit in his face. Caiaphas was powerless to put Jesus to death. So he forged an alliance with Pilate. And he handed Jesus over to Pilate. And Judas, he knew there was only one reason why that they would hand Jesus over to Pilate. And that was to put him to death. And that is not what Judas wanted. That's not what he expected. That's not what he planned. He thought maybe they'd hold him for the night, let him go in a couple of days. Maybe he was gonna force Jesus' hand and Jesus was gonna go ahead and start the kingdom. He says, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned to Pilate, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. What was worth more to Judas than Jesus a few moments ago? What was worth betraying Jesus to Judas a few moments ago? What was worth giving up everything Jesus had taught them a few moments ago is worthless. It is worthless. What began as pleasure, what began as gain, has turned into a very painful loss. When Judas finally got what he wanted, he didn't want it like he thought he wanted it. And that's the way sin is. That's exactly how sin is. You think you have to have it. You think you need it. You think you have to. You think you have no choice. It's worth more to you than Jesus in the moment. And with a choice, we betray him because something else was more important. And it was really all about me to begin with. That's the way sin is. It's sweet 
in our mouths until it turns to gravel. Judah said, I've sinned. I've sinned! Can you hear it? I mean, can you just imagine how he felt in this moment, realizing what he had done? I've sinned! I've betrayed innocent blood! And the chief priests, they look at him and say, what is that to us? That's your responsibility. In other words, you did this. There was no one else to blame. You did this, Judas. And now he is in a hell of his own making. He is in hell on earth because that's how regret can be. You don't have to go to hell to be in hell. He was in a hell of his own making, haunted by his choice, haunted by his decision, haunted that something else was more important than Jesus. And 30 pieces of silver was a reminder of his biggest regret. This is not what he intended to happen. And for us, the same is true. Seldom did we think it was going to be as bad as what it turned out to be. It was supposed to be fun. It was supposed to be great. It was supposed to be new. It was supposed to be fresh. It was supposed to be a brand new way, a better way. But it turned into regret. And it says, so Judas threw the money into the temple and left. And then he went away and hanged himself. And what's so scary for me, for you, for us, God will not get in the way of us having our way. Judas, in the end, got his way. God will not rob us of the responsibility that the consequences of our choices bring. And in this moment, he did not see hope beyond his regret. And here's what I want to say to all of us. Judas was not the first nor the last to betray Jesus. He's just simply the most famous. He's not the first. He's not going to be the last. He had a what's in it for me faith. Let me ask you, you ever betrayed Jesus with a choice? What's your 30 pieces of silver? What were they? What are they? What might they be? How much is Jesus really worth to me? How much will it take to buy me? How much will it take to get me to betray him with my choice? So let me ask you, you carrying around regret? You carrying around some shame? You carrying around some guilt because of your Judas moment? Because there's a little crazy in all of us. And as much as we don't want to admit it, there's a little Judas in all of us. Judas was no different than the other 11. They were all traitors at the end of Jesus's life. But the difference was 
Only one of them didn't come back. Only one of them didn't return to Jesus. And that's what makes Judas's story so tragic. He could have. Jesus showed up to carry sin on the cross. The sin of Judas and Peter and Andrew and James and John and Thomas and Bartholomew and Jack and Trevor and Allison and Brenda and Bill and Bob and Jane and all of us to carry all of our sin. Betrayal every single time. But the tragedy was not that he betrayed, but he betrayed did not come back. See, the other 11, they believed that God, he will not remove your regret, but God will redeem your regret. That's what they believed. That's why they came back. And to you, I want to say, Jesus died for the sin, which became your regret. Think about that. Jesus died for the sin that you call regret. And Jesus died for the sin that one day may come your, become your regret. So don't hold on to what Jesus died to take away because he carried Judas's betrayal on the cross. He carried Peter's denial on the cross. He carried Thomas's doubt on the cross. He carried our sin on the cross so that we could run back to him no matter what we had sold him for. Because there's always more grace in Jesus than sin in us. Father, we've all had our moments. Maybe we're in a moment right now God, remind us that we don't have to carry our regrets. You died for those sins. You have removed them as far as the east is to the west. That's what the cross reminds us of. So no matter what we've done and no matter who we are, you invite us to come to you. Because of the cross, there is forgiveness. And because of the cross, that forgiveness is free. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to remain seated, and I just want us to just sit. And if you're carrying regret, if you're carrying guilt, if you're carrying shame, maybe today you would just whisper a prayer and say, God, if my regret has kept me away, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. And if I'm carrying my regret around and it's ruining my life, if it's adversely affecting my life, today, God, I lay it down because I realize that what I call regret, you call sin and you died for it. And you made a way to be forgiven fully and freely. And today, I wanna keep my eyes on the cross and remember that I don't have to carry my regrets any longer.